0: Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I want to speak to the camera. My son, James, is at home right now, and I want to say happy birthday, buddy. I love you. I am so grateful for three years of my son James being uh, in this world. I'm so grateful for him. Luke chapter 4. Uh, we're going to start our time, before we dive into the meat of this text, by um, trying to just make some observations, some, some contextual observations about This passage that I think will help us as we dive into the meat. And and so, a few observations. First, I think it's important for us to notice the location of what's going to be, of where all the action is going to be taking place. So, in Luke chapter 4, where does all the action take place? In the wilderness in the wilderness. We don't know exactly where this wilderness is. Most likely it's in to, in that region east of Jerusalem. But it's the wilderness. And more importantly than where, or more important than where the wilderness is is what is in the wilderness. Um in in these days, uh, historically speaking, the wilderness was a place that was associated with demonic activity. Demonic activity. The wilderness is where the demons live. In fact, in the book of Luke, just a few chapters later, we'll see that demons actually seem to have safe haven. They flee to the wilderness where, they, where there's relative safety. It's a place that teems with demonic activity. Even in Martin Luther's day in the 1500s, the wilderness was a place that, that was associated with this sort of stuff. The woods were, were thought of as places where little devils lived. And, and I've been in the woods plenty of times growing up in the South, and I don't always feel super comfortable in the woods either. It's, it's a little creepy at times. So this is not like a bizarre, um, those, those ancient people think this sort of way. Um, th- there has historically been an assumption that the wilderness is a place where the demonic live. So, it's a, it's a place where evil runs wild. Not exactly a place that you want to spend time in. Not only that, though. The wilderness is a place that, that is meant to remind us of God's people and their failings. As you think back over the Bible and what you know about the Bible, what's the most a big important story that comes to mind about the wilderness. Well, it's Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years they spent in the wilderness, largely as judgment for their failings. 40 years where Israel wandered and time and time again, they failed to trust in the Lord. They refused to honor God. They refused to to acknowledge and appreciate his presence. They didn't obey the law. Israel was tested and tried and found wanting in the wilderness. And now Jesus is going to go and spend time in the wilderness. And this is one of those things that as we read this and as the people of God would have read this or heard this story, they would have been put on their heels a little bit bit and went, "Uh uh-oh. This story sounds familiar. I know how this story ends. It's not exactly a comforting picture that Jesus is now being ushered out into the wilderness. So there's a location, there's a context uh, for location here but there are also some characters, important characters. So we have Jesus, we have the spirit and then we have the devil the devil, the great adversary. That is who Jesus is being ushered into the wilderness to meet with. The beast, Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air. And and he'll be there waiting for Jesus. So Jesus will spend 40 days, and that's a significant number because it reminds us of the 40 years of Israel being in the wilderness. Will spend forty days, and that will culminate in Satan tempting Jesus with three temptations. Three is an important word for or important number for the Hebrew people. It's a number of completion, meaning that these temptations are not going to be run-of-the-mill, garden-variety temptations. It's not going to be Satan coming along and giving his B effort. No, he is going to come, and he is going to come in power, and he is going to use everything at his disposal to make Jesus slip to succumb, to fall down. And so Satan will meet for only the second time a human being face to face. Last time it didn't go well for humankind. There's so many illusions that we can unpack in a passage like this. Maybe your grace group would be a great place to unpack some of these these different illusions that are here in Luke chapter four. But what we're seeing, what we're being prepared for is a showdown, a showdown. Satan knows who is coming to him. Satan is aware that Jesus was just declared the son of God at his baptism. Satan is not ignorant of, of Isaiah and the prophecies that the Messiah would come. And that he would bring peace. That that joy would come at his coming. And so now Satan is going to give his absolute best effort to wage war on this Jesus. And he won't hold anything back. He will seek to subvert Jesus. And to throw him off of the mission, the purpose for which he came. And so the question is, is will Jesus fail like the first Adam? Will he fail like Israel and the people of God before him? Will he fail like every human being that has ever lived? Or is he different? Will he triumph? Well, this morning, we will see a showdown. And know this, our lives and our salvation literally are on the line. And so as we see this unfold, we'll see two points that we want to explore. First, the Son of God has come. The Son of God has arrived. And that is good news. And then second, there is no crown without the cross. There is no crown without the cross. I'm going to read this passage, Luke chapter 4. Verses 1 through 13, and have you follow along with me. So, as I read, please follow along. Luke 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Pray with me, please. Father, we are so grateful for your son Jesus and that we can gather together in his name today Lord, as we consider Jesus and his temptations, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with faith and wonder at your glory and your might. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and that we would love you and adore Jesus more because of our time together this morning. We offer it to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so again, the first thing we want to see as we dive into Luke chapter four is that the Son of God has, in fact, arrived. He has arrived. And so we begin Luke chapter four with this incredible truth that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, on the heels of his baptism, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. We know what happens next, right? Satan, the devil is waiting for him. And in the wilderness, he will be tempted by the devil and an incredible trial ensues, right? Now as a quick aside, I'm gonna spend a lot of time here as a quick aside, notice that Jesus was both full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he would be tempted. I think this can serve as a helpful reminder that God is sovereign over our trials. We could think, we could be so tempted to think that God has abandoned us to our trials and the, temptation that often, uh, the, the temptations that often occur within those trials. When we're in trial, when we face temptation, it feels like God is a million miles away sometimes and, and, and like he's, he's left us here. We're alone in the midst of our trial. We're alone in our temptation. But simple question, did God abandon Jesus here? No, no, in fact, it was God indwelling Jesus who sent Jesus out into the wilderness. And in fact, the grammar here shows us that not only did he send Jesus out into the wilderness, but he actually went with him and strengthened him in the midst of it. So as you face trials, you face temptation, And you're tempted to think that God is not with you and he does not love you. Remember that God went with Jesus into his temptation. But Jesus does go out into the wilderness. And so as he goes into the wilderness, he doesn't eat. He fasts for 40 days. And this is reminiscent of fasts that, that others in the Old Testament had taken. These long fasts, Moses, Elijah, and as you could probably imagine, after Jesus' fast for 40 days, he is hungry. He is famished. And so Satan comes along, the devil comes along, and he says, if you are the son of God, turn this stone into bread. Make it become bread. And Jesus rebuffs this temptation with the word of God. It is written, man shall not live By bread alone. Jesus is actually quoting Deuteronomy here. The the fuller quotation is that man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very words of God. And so Jesus is pointing to that thing that is most necessary for life as the thing that he feasts on and he lives on the Word, the Word of God. So that's the first temptation. The third temptation, skipping over the second, the third temptation is Satan taking Jesus to Jerusalem, up to the top of the temple. Most likely he's at one of the corners of the temple, a particular corner that overlooks the Kidron Valley, a couple hundred feet up. And he says to him, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, God will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now I want us to notice something very important about this passage of scripture and it's the conditional statement the conditional statement within this passage. I think this entire passage turns on the conditional statement. So often we can turn Luke 4 into a simple guide for how to fight temptation, how to win against, or to win in the battle versus temptation. And this is certainly a wonderful passage for us to to be um, built up with the word of God and to be strengthened by the word of God and to know that we can steward and wield the word of God, to know how Satan tends to function, Those are good and helpful things, but really, I think the heart of this passage turns on this conditional statement. If, if, if you are the son of God, do these things. What's happening here in Luke chapter 4 is Satan is calling into question Jesus' sonship. And he's bidding him to demonstrate, to prove his sonship in improper and unholy ways. And so the question is, is Jesus, who he was declared to be at his baptism, is he truly the son of God? Now, we can uh, see the answer to this in any one of these temptations. I want us to focus on the third, though. So notice here that this temptation takes place in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In the book of Luke, there's almost this magnetic pull from Jerusalem. Everything is moving towards Jerusalem. Everything is being pulled towards Jerusalem in the book of Luke. Now Satan takes Jesus up to the tip top of the temple in Jerusalem and he essentially asks, will God protect you? If you are the son of God, he will. And to really drive this temptation home, Satan quotes scripture. He seeks to wield scripture. God said that he will protect you. He said that he'll command these angels concerning you. Now again, as a quick aside, this is one of those those times where we need to recognize that quoting the Bible doesn't mean that a person is necessarily right or telling the truth. When we see the Bible quoted, when we see the Bible being heralded, we need to measure the Bible with the Bible. We need to understand the Bible in light of the Bible. And we need to look at character when the Bible is being wielded. Satan himself knows the word and he will wield it. And he's used many messengers over the years to do that very thing. And so we need to know the word and we need to be able to understand the word in its context and to to critique the word by the word. And so, will... Jesus, do this impressive thing. Jump. That's what Satan is bidding him to do. Jump. Have the angels bear you up and prove that you are in fact the son of God. Demonstrate to me and demonstrate to everybody else and prove to yourself that you are in fact the son of God. Do you see why this is alluring? Do you see why this might actually be a temptation? Jesus is the son of God. He is the Son of God, and wouldn't he want that to be known? Wouldn't he want that to be demonstrated? Don't you hate when people misrepresent you and misunderstand you? Wouldn't Jesus want to declare from the mountaintop, I am the Son of God? This is my true identity. It would make his mission so much easier, wouldn't it? He can make a spectacle of himself. He wouldn't have to be the humble baby in a manger. He wouldn't have to be the humble king on a donkey. He wouldn't have to be the humble savior on a cross. But the thing is, God had already told Jesus who he was. God had already definitively declared the identity of Jesus. When the heavens opened up, and the spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism, the father declared, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so the question is, would Jesus trust that declaration? Would Jesus trust a miraculous but somewhat humble proclamation of his true identity? Or would he require a public spectacle in the most holy place that would definitively prove who he is once and for all. I think this passage, again, draws our attention back to the wilderness, back to the people of God who wandered. And what happened there? God delivered these people. He delivered his chosen people from bondage in Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. And they were his people. They had his presence. They received his law. They had these incredible declarations made over them time and time again. They had everything they needed in front of their face. They had God's words and yet they doubted. They doubted. They refused to trust. They refused to honor God for who he was so they looked for signs. They wanted to return to Egypt. They failed. And so now as we see Jesus in the wilderness tempted with with a temptation very similarly how would he respond would he succumb like Israel no he would not Jesus saw Satan for what he was the deceiver And he recognized him for the scripture twister that he is. And he said, it is said, you shall not put the Lord God to your test. Jesus trusted in his father's declaration. And in so doing, he demonstrated that he is the real deal. You know, I uh, made this incredible group of friends while I was in seminary. And and we still uh, are dear friends to this day. And some of those friends uh, to this day give me a particularly hard time for this one instance where I lacked kindness and charity and I basically stereotyped a person. So um, the very first friend I made while I was in seminary we became fast friends. The very first person I met in seminary, we became fast friends. And we started playing basketball together. And before too long, we put together a pretty competitive intramural basketball team. And he and I were the co-captains. And I was pretty proud of this team. And so we we were really excited about it. And then the second semester of, uh, of Talbot came along and we met this new guy. And this new guy came and he said, oh, I heard you guys have a basketball team. I love basketball. I would love to join and the way the, that they tell the story, the way the story goes is I paused, I looked him up and down and said, "Now nah, we don't have room on our team. And the reason why is because I looked at this guy and I just knew that he wasn't a real basketball player. He was tall, so he had that going for him but I've played basketball with people like him for a long time, and I just knew this guy was not athletic. I mean, the way he dressed, the way his hair looked, the way he talked, everything about him just screamed that he was going to get out there and he was going to embarrass us on the basketball court. And so I just said, no, we don't have room for you. Sorry. And... Um, so anyway a few weeks later uh, my friend and I would go and we play pickup basketball and sure enough this guy uh, John was there and we started to play basketball and lo and behold this guy's actually a good basketball player he actually knows what he's doing and so I had to, to tuck my tail in and go to him and say we actually do have room on the basketball team would you please join us and uh And so he became a part of our team. We played in lots of leagues at Biola and in the community for years. And we had a great time. And they continue to tell this story where I look bad. So the reason I share this is because I learned through this process that my friend John was a real basketball player. He was the real deal. And I think that's what we're seeing here in Luke 4. At the heart of Luke 4, we see that Jesus is the real deal. He's the real McCoy. He truly is the son of God. He's not playing around. This is his identity. This was declared at his baptism and it was verified as he overcame temptation in the wilderness. And so as Jesus embarks upon his public earthly ministry, he will do so as no mere man, not as a great teacher, not as a mere man with upstanding character, not merely as a miracle worker, he will do so as the unique son of God. And that is good news for us. That's really good news for us. From a young age, I knew that I was a sinner. I knew that there was something wrong with me. And I knew that there was something that needed to be fixed. And praise the Lord, I heard the gospel. And the gospel told me that Jesus could be my savior, my redeemer. He can reconcile me to God. He could take my, my, my cold, black, dark heart and he could give me a heart, that, a heart of flesh that beats for him. And, and so my entire life, I've banked it on Jesus. All of my hope is in Jesus because if, if he isn't the real deal, then I'm still broken and I'm still in my sin. And I still have to pay for that sin. If Jesus isn't the son of God, then he isn't the savior of the world. If he isn't the son of God, then he isn't taking my sin and imputing to me his righteousness. He's not the pure spotless lamb for sinners slain and I am dead in my sin and you are dead in your sin. Imagine for a second that the wrath of God is still upon us. It rests upon us. There's no savior there to take it for us. Imagine that the son of God was not sent. Imagine that he wasn't baptized. Imagine that he didn't triumph over temptation. Imagine he didn't go to the cross. Imagine he didn't triumph over the grave. Where would we be? Isn't that a frightening thought? That's most likely a thought that some of us wrestle with Even though Jesus has come, it's a thought that we wrestle with as we succumb to temptation and sin again and again and again. I should know better. That's often one of the things that Satan tempts me with. He accuses me. I should know better. I'm a pastor. What are you doing dealing with this? For some of us, maybe we we think back to the terrible life we once lived. How could I truly be forgiven? Maybe some of us think about late night clicks on the internet. Maybe some of us think about our anger bubbling up once again and, respond and, and resulting in sinful anger. How could I be forgiven? And the question is, is there a savior who can take this? Who could take my sin, your sin? Is he legitimate? Is he real? Is there one who can bear the sins of the world? Is all this stuff that we confess and we sing about, is it real? Can I be loved and accepted truly? And Grace, the, the answer that Luke 4 gives us is yes. A resounding yes. Scripture testifies and it's made plain here in Luke 4. Yes, Jesus is the real deal. He is the unique son of God. And because of that, he can bear the sins of the world upon his shoulders and he will make all things new. This is good news. And so Satan comes and he wants to call this into question. Are you truly the son of God? And that doesn't go well for him. Because yes, Jesus is. And he demonstrates it. But that's not all that Satan wants to do. He wants to derail Jesus' mission as well. So second thing we're going to see in the scriptures is that there is no crown without a cross. There is no crown without the cross. And I I think we see this point again in all the temptations. But most specifically, we see it when we look at the second temptation. So, Satan takes Jesus in the second temptation. And we don't know exactly what this looks like. The book of Matthew says that he takes him to uh, the top of a mountain. Uh, The book of Luke makes it seem almost more like it's a quick vision. But in some way, Jesus is transported to a place where he can see all the kingdoms of the world, all the glory of the world on display in front of him. Now, take a second and think about that. Have you ever been to a, a grand place, the Grand Canyon, ever been to Mount Z- or to Zion, ever been uh, to a great overlook, somewhere that's just breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, if you've ever been to Me- uh, Mexico with this, a lot of the people who go on that trip, they know there's a particular overlook that I love. We go up uh, as, we're, as we're heading south, down towards San Quintin, Mexico, we, we go up over this big overlook and it's this massive view of the Pacific Ocean. And every time I go over there, I just think, who are you, O oh Lord, that you could create and sustain such beauty? No doubt you have a place that you can think of like that. And Satan takes Jesus to a point where he can see all of these things and it's glorious. And Jesus in his humanity, has never seen anything close to this. We forget, but Jesus' entire life was, uh, his entire adult life was spent in an area that was probably about the size of Fullerton. He never traveled beyond these places in his humanity. And now he's being in a vision or on a mountain. He's seeing all that the world has to offer, all the glory that the world has to offer, all the beauty that the world has to offer. And so Satan takes him up to this mountain or in this vision and he says, it could all be yours. It could all be yours to rule and to reign over if only you would fall down and worship me. So what's going on? What exactly is the temptation that we're dealing with here. I think this is one of those temptations that might be a little bit lost on us because the idea of falling down and worshiping anyone is such a foreign concept to us, much less the devil. Um, it just seems absurd. But not only that, but if we consider a book like Colossians, if we're, if we're thinking biblically, then we would know that Jesus was there in the beginning and through him everything was made. And not only that, but everything exists for him. And so all of this stuff that Satan is showing him is his. It is his. It exists for him. It's his right to rule and reign over these things. But here's where we see the insidious nature of this temptation. We have to see why the temptation was so appealing. This isn't Satan coming along and tempting Jesus to something terrible or seeking to give him something that does not belong to him. No, he's offering him almost everything that that Jesus desires. He's offering him the keys to the kingdom. He's offering him the presidency of the world. He's offering him to be supreme emperor. He's offering him worship and glory and honor even. But he's offering it to him apart from the suffering that would occur at the cross. He's offering it in such a way where Jesus would receive a crown without the cross. So Satan is tempting Jesus with good things, things that are his by right, offering him to be adored, to be worshiped, to be loved, but without suffering, without trouble. And how does Jesus respond? How would you respond? if you could have everything that you ever wanted, everything that you feel you should receive without any cost, without any trouble. Imagine that you could have retirement without the years of labor and work. Imagine married couples that you could have sexual intimacy without the intentionality of loving and serving your spouse. Imagine you could be fit without exercising and eating right. We can go down the list, right? How would you respond if you could take a shortcut and get all the things that you ever wanted without the work? I don't think we would respond well. But Jesus is better than us. And he responds, it is written and then he quotes Deuteronomy 6. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Devil, you are a created thing and you are not worthy of worship. The one who is worthy of worship is the one who created you. And him only is worship should worship be offered to. Jesus recognizes the insidious nature of this temptation. He realizes that Satan is a liar and he has always been a liar and he can't make good on his promises and he sees through Satan's attempt to derail him from the cross and so he stands. He triumphs. No shortcuts. I see uh, Jim Clark back here. So... Um, In our office over here, we just recently replaced our our carpets in the office. And as part of that, I had to move all the stuff out of my office. And I don't have many uh, great uh, um, uh, uh, possessions that really cost a lot uh, or worth much, physical possessions. But I do have uh, a football, an Alabama football that's signed by the 2009 national championship team. And to keep it safe, I put that, uh, Jim Clark let me put that football in his office. But it's on the bottom shelf below his USC football helmet and his USC football. (laughs) And so I want to use an illustration that, that puts USC not in a great light. A couple of years ago, there was a USC... Uh, football player. He's one of the best football players on their team, a really talented guy, and he made the news because of a heroic act. He was uh, in a condo on the second story of the condo when he heard the cries of a girl, a little girl who was drowning in a pool. And so this man heroically leaped over the balcony, jumped down uh, an entire story, broke both of his ankles, crawled into the pool and got this little girl out, saved her life. And, and then as you can imagine, this made the news and people were lauding him as a real true hero. But the problem was, is this got a little bit too much press to the point where people started to poke holes in this story. And they started to go, did that really happen? They couldn't track down the girl who they thought dr- almost drowned. Nobody would corroborate this story. And... And before too long, what they realized was is this guy made it all up. The real story goes that uh, there were people doing drugs in this apartment. And uh, the police came. And this football player realized, hey, my future is at stake. So he went out and jumped off the balcony. And when he did, he broke both of his ankles. And he made up a story to make himself look better. He wanted to be seen as a hero. But in order to be seen as a hero, you have to possess virtue. You have to possess character. It's hard. You don't just stumble into becoming a hero. And this guy, he sought to take shortcuts. He wanted the glory without the hard work of earning the glory. Well, in a similar way, Satan tempted Jesus with almost everything he could ever want. Almost everything he could ever want without having to do the hard work, without the suffering that comes along with the things that Jesus wanted, without the the life that culminated at the cross. And Satan's temptation to Jesus, they're the exact same sort of temptations that we face every day, aren't they? We too are tempted to exalt ourselves in a way that goes against God's ways of doing things. No, I would, I would never do that. I would never take shortcuts. Yes, you would. And yes, you have. And so have I, they were told a white lie so that you could look a little bit better, they were put somebody else down so that you could exalt yourself. There is a reason why people cheat on their taxes and on their exams. There is a reason why we uh, live in a society that is mired in pornography use. There is a reason why we continually seek to skip over the process. We are suffering averse. We hate suffering and we seek to avoid it by any means necessary so Satan tempts us to exalt ourselves and we take the bait, hook, line, and sinker. And as we do, we fall to our knees and we bow down to the devil. See, devil worship is not like it looks in the movies. It's like taking his words and treating them as if they are authoritative and powerful and saying, yes, I will live according to your ways rather than the, all, than the creator God." This is our story. This is Israel's story, bowing down to golden calves. We are idolaters and we have continued and we will continue to bow down to the idols that our idol factory of hearts continue to churn out. But Jesus is different. Jesus is our hero. And he sets his face on Jerusalem. He sets his face on his cross and he moves decisively in that direction. And as Philippians 2 says, because Jesus humbled himself by taking on human form and because he submitted himself to death, even death on a grisly cross in our place, he, God will highly exalt him and bestow on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus took no shortcuts, and he is worthy of our praise. This morning, uh, we're gonna close our time by... Uh, remembering and proclaiming Christ's death by taking communion. We're going to very practically feast on the bread of heaven so that we might be nourished. And as we do, I wanna draw your attention back to the first temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness. Jesus was hungry. He was hungry. He had fasted for 40 days. And so he was hungry. And Satan came to tempt them in the midst of that hunger. Turn this stone into bread. Command this stone to become bread. God doesn't really care about your daily provision. God isn't really good to provide for your need. He doesn't care that you're hungry. He doesn't care that you're famished. So prove you are the son of God by taking care of your own needs. You don't need to suffer needlessly. Does that sound familiar, that line of arguing? It's a classic. It's the same sort of thing that Satan said to Adam and Eve in the garden, to our first parents. Did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Does God really not care for you? Does He not care about your biggest and greatest needs? Does he not have your best interest in heart? Is he not a father who cares for his children by giving them what they need and what is good for them? Well, we know the story. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they doubted the goodness of God, they doubted his faithful and loving provision, and they took and they ate. And as one scholar put it, so simple an act. So hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. You see, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will become righteous. Jesus triumphed and now we can have life in his name. We can have his righteousness credited to our account. We today can take and we can eat and proclaim his gospel and be filled up. We can do this as those who are freed from the penalty of sin. And because Jesus triumphed over temptation, we too now are freed from the power of sin and we can walk in newness of life, actually denying Satan, resisting him and walking according to the spirit. We can overcome sin. Jesus made a way for us to experience life and freedom in his name. And so now we can approach the table as sons and daughters.